Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast that looks at how politics works and if it can be done better. In this episode, we'll be joined by Professor in British and Comparative Politics and Director of the Constitution Unit at UCL, Meg Russell, and Barrister and former Conservative MP and Attorney General Dominic Grieve to discuss the UK Constitution. What is it? Is it fit for purpose? And what can be done to change it? Armando, why are we talking about the Constitution? And I know I asked before, what is it? But I thought that it didn't actually exist, if my AS politics... (laughs) It doesn't actually (laughs) exist. And uh, so we ought to discuss whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. We're recording this, to let everyone know, on a glorious, sunny lunchtime. And yet we're in this bunker discussing, you know, constitutional law. And I think for a very good reason, because it might sound like a dry topic, but I think it's absolutely crucial to our survival. We've seen, you know, the power of government when an emergency happens, the emergency powers it can bring in over COVID. But we've also seen massive disruptions in constitutional issues like Brexit, like the fact that, you know, the prime minister can change the law to allow an MP not to be penalised for breaking the ministerial code. Well, that was the intention. And also, given the sad situation going on in Ukraine, we also have to ask ourselves, you know, does our constitution, whatever that may be, is that strong enough to prevent the likes of an Erdogan or an Orban or a Putin emerging? In the UK. Because mm, I know this is a bugbear of yours, isn't it, mm. that the Prime Minister has too much power? Yes. The Prime Minister and not with, just this particular Prime Minister. No, a prime, any Prime Minister with a, a working majority can do anything. They can abolish the Supreme Court if they want because, of course, they brought in the Supreme Court. They can change electoral laws, the Electoral Commission, whether Parliament has to vote on whether there's an election or not. You know, it's the, it's the legislature, the executive and the judiciary all rolled into one. And normally there's been a sort of convention in principle has stopped prime ministers from crossing certain lines. Now, my thing is we have a government and a prime minister who's not prepared to follow convention. And, and therefore, where does that leave us? Mm. And what's interesting is that there's also that control over the legislative timetable as well. The most recent economic crime bill, for example, that had disappeared for a while. That had gone very quiet. And all of a sudden, it reappeared now that oligarchs were were in our crosshairs once more. Well, exactly. So it just shows you you know, how much power is at the whim. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg let, let the whole thing slip when he said <laughs> that actually we have a presidential system now which obviously we don't, 
but we kind of do. And, you know, is that is that a healthy thing? Today, Professor Meg Russell and Dominic Grieve QC are going to help us get to the bottom of this and even imagine how things could be different. Let's tell you a bit more about them. Meg Russell is a professor of British and comparative politics and director of the Constitution Unit at UCL. She is a senior fellow with the UK in a Changing Europe programme working on Brexit, Parliament and the Constitution, and the author of several books, most recently, Legislation at Westminster, Parliamentary Actors and Influence in the Making of British Law. And we're also joined by Dominic Grieve-Cousy, who worked as a barrister before becoming a Conservative MP. He's had several roles in government, including Shadow Home Secretary and Attorney General for England and Wales. He was a prominent Remainer and, when in government, one of the most vocal supporters of the European Convention on Human Rights. So, shall we start with the big question? <laughs> so, is it good that we don't have a written constitution or is it bad? We do have a written constitution. It's written down in a whole variety of different places. And of course, it's not entrenched in any way. It can be changed by government if a government has a majority and wishes to do it. And as you rightly said, it's also hedged around with conventions mm. by which traditionally there are areas into which the government will not stray because that would break down parliamentary consensus to the point where minorities might not be willing to accept majority decisions. And it's undoubtedly been under a great deal of stress, although it is, I think, surprisingly resilient despite that. But that's not to say that in being resilient, it does anything more than survive rather than develop in a way that might help our politics and the way we make decisions. Well, it was always seen as a mark of uh, historians would often claim that it was actually a special virtue of of the UK that it d didn't have a constitution sort of written in aspect that actually could be modified and changed and evolved. And that was contributed to, you know, our survival as a democracy. But I just wonder if there comes a point where actually that becomes a hindrance, the fact that actually nobody quite knows what the answer is to, to any significant change. I, I would say potentially, but I think that there are pluses and minuses of having the kind of flexible constitution that we have. I mean, the, the, the sense in which we don't have a constitution, famously, is that we don't have a single document that pulls all of this stuff together, which in other countries that have those kinds of documents, they tend to be protected ultimately by the judiciary. They can't be that easily changed by, by, by governments. But, but you mentioned in the intro uh, Orban and Erdogan and Putin. And of course, all three of those countries have written constitutions as does virtually every other country around the world, as does the US, where people are you know, concerned about many of the same kinds of developments in politics. So a rigid written constitution does not necessarily protect you against some of the kinds of trends that we're worried about in this country, which are mirrored in many other countries. And indeed, in any country, if you have a strong parliamentary majority behind you in your party, you can do things like dismantling judicial checks, shutting down free media, banning opposition parties, all of this in the context of a written constitution. So I think at one level, the UK looks quite different to other places. But at another level, it's important not to blame our predicament, if we think we have one, upon the nature of our institutions. I think if we do, we're looking in the wrong place. There are problems like this in places all over the world, and they're cultural just as much as they are institutional. But Dominic, you, you mentioned that there were areas into which governments still will not stray. What, what, what are those areas? Because I just wonder if, if any of them are now in any government sites. 
obvious area into which government shouldn't stray is recognizing the independence of the judiciary and the importance of its role in underpinning the rule of law. So clearly, Brexit placed that under pressure because the prorogation case was an almost classic example of the exercise of a prerogative power lying wholly with the prime minister and misused and abused by him, which was then checked by an exercise of the Supreme Court. But clearly, if you decide that that's an area where you want to pass legislation, which you can do, which prevents a court in future applying that check, then that is going to be a significant constitutional change. And certainly in the last three or four years, the government has shown signs of finding many conventions irksome, almost wanting to return to some sort of mythical world in which the prime minister has presidential power and can do what he likes unless he's toppled by a parliamentary coup, loses his majority, or thrown out by the electorate after five years. What we seem to have lost, but it may be simply because of the nature of the political crisis we went through over Brexit, is that rather subtle recognition that to make the UK constitution work, you have to maintain trust and confidence, particularly from the opposition in the way it's functioning. And that requires a degree of delicacy, which has been, I have to say, I think rather absent of late. Similarly, another example, our international treaty obligations. Mm -hmm. In the dualist system, we have a system where most of those don't form part of our law. It is simply a say-so of government that we will observe our international treaty obligations. And one of the role of the law officers is to make sure that the government always has an arguable case if it decides uh, to do something which might be seen to be in breach. And yet we saw an example with the Internal Markets Bill where the government quite deliberately introduced a piece of legislation which even the Attorney General could not argue was not breaching an international legal obligation, although she then put forward an entirely spurious explanation, I have to say, as to why it was permissible, because Parliament was sovereign. When the obligation doesn't fall on Parliament, the obligation falls on the government. Yes, I think the phrase was, we are breaking international law, but yeah. only in a limited and yes. specific way. And I think if I said yeah. that to, if I was stopped by the police for speeding and said, I, I'm speeding, but only on this street, <laughs> but you know, I promise I will slow down from <laughs> around the corner, I wouldn't get away with it. Why, why weren't any of them charged. <laughs> because they hadn't actually done anything wrong, because the UK Parliament is sovereign uh, and therefore has unlimited power, as we were discussing at the very start of this. So the question is, who has the ultimate authority? And in our system, Parliament classically has the ultimate authority. We have this principle of parliamentary sovereignty, that Parliament mm -hmm. comes above the judiciary, ultimately, rather than the other way around. But I would argue, as a parliamentary specialist, that... In a sense, in any system, Parliament comes above the judiciary because actually, as I said before, if, if you can get a, an adequate majority in Parliament, you can start to weaken them. Mm. Politics always matters in any kind of system. One of the benefits, you could say, of our traditionally flexible constitution is, as Dominic referred to, it basically requires people to behave well. It requires people to act with restraint and perhaps with higher levels of restraint than you might do if you felt that you were acting within a kind of cage where you were ultimately controlled by the judiciary. So hopefully it encourages better behavior among politicians. They have a greater responsibility on their shoulders, but it also creates this fragility. But isn't the problem at the, at the moment that, that this better behavior has, has dissipated, that actually now 
government has been quite ruthless, as, as Dominic mentioned, in saying, no, we're, we're not going to abide by this. We're going to change the law here. We're going to, you know, if someone is in breach of the Ministry of Gold, we'll change the law to let them off. If we've, we've made a treaty, we'll still ignore a part of it uh, because it's in our interests, knowing that actually there is limited checks and balances to stop them from doing that. It's a delicate balance, but I would say ultimately you cannot in the end have a democracy which is governed by judges because those judges will be overthrown if you can get the so-called will of the people mm -hmm. on your side because they'll be able to be presented as a sort of unelected elite. So you always rely on a healthy political culture, a healthy democratic culture where people respect difference, where opposition is allowed, where there's free speech and, and, a, and a healthy media environment, and you rely on politicians to behave well, even if you've got a set of quite strict written rules. And we're seeing that breaking down in various countries around the world. Well, just to counter Armando's question, if I can, yes. is this a sign of the system working well? Because covering British politics, the phrase constitutional crisis comes up a lot. Not that our sub-editors would ever let me put that in a headline, but, you know, yeah. over all of these various cases that, that you've all been discussing. But is, are these gridlocks and are cases like the Supreme Court ruling on the prorogation of Parliament or the Internal Markets Bill row, are they signs that actually the system does work and it does limit the sort of baser instincts of the politicians that are currently running our system. I think the system does show quite a lot of resilience. Take the internal markets bill. It was undoubtedly a breach of international law, but what actually happened was that the House of Lords chucked it out. And the amount of public resistance which built into the system, including from people who'd supported Leave, for example, saying this is unacceptable for the United Kingdom to behave in this way, actually led to the government dropping it. So it was, in fact, a classic example of a government about to do something which I would regard as very bad behaviour and being stopped not by laws or a constitution, but simply by the process of democracy that we have. What is correct is that we seem to have had an awful lot of these crises in the last five or six years. And there is some clear evidence that the government driven by, you can argue, populist instincts, but saying that people want a different kind of government, seem more willing to push the envelope out to its maximum and to challenge some of those conventions underpinning the way government behaves. Is that a sign our democracy is about to collapse? I don't think so unless the public decide that they're prepared to tolerate it. In which case, yes, a populist government can change the law and skew it to its own advantage. And if the people are prepared to accept it, they will be saddled with the consequences. And that's how countries cease to be democracies, cease to be free and turn into tyrannies. And it can happen. Mm. I think we have to accept that. But as Meg was saying, it's happening also in countries that have beautifully crafted constitutions. One of the things which has put strain on our system, and you know, I, I want to keep emphasising that we shouldn't see ourselves as exceptional here, but if you look back at the last few years, undoubtedly one of the things that put strain on the system was the Brexit referendum. Dominic referred to the, the arguments in the Supreme Court about whether Parliament ought to be consulted on things about, in the, at the end, whether Parliament ought to be allowed to be shut down. And we got into that situation because the government was claiming to be acting on a mandate that came from a referendum. So it was effectively claiming a higher mandate than the mandate that comes from Parliament. So I think you see from that episode, which had enormous reverberations, that there is a risk with referendums that they challenge the balance of parliamentary sovereignty. The idea that Parliament comes on top 
was challenged by the government that said, no, the referendum comes on top. And that wound up in the Supreme Court because the government was claiming to act on an instruction that had come from the referendum, which in the end wasn't a particularly clear instruction. So one thing that Dominic and I have have worked on together a few years ago quite closely, the Constitution Unit created this thing called the Independent Commission on Referendums to review our use of referendums in, in the UK. And Dominic sat there along with others, um, including Gisela Stewart, who was the chair of the Vote Leave campaign, of course. So it was very mm. plural opinion yeah. around the table. And we came up with a set of about 70 recommendations, if I remember, and ways to do referendums better. The way that referendum was done was problematic because there wasn't a clear prospectus put to the people as to what leave would mean. And we then spent about three years after the referendum arguing about how to interpret the meaning of leave. And that was left to parliament and the government to battle out and in the end wound up twice in the courts. So that that is an institutional problem that we could try and prevent happening again. But would the government allow you to prevent it? I mean, haven't they opened the floodgates by, by using the rep- referendum as an example of something? The precedent has been set that the popular will supersedes parliament, the parliamentary will. It can be exploited. But the interesting thing of the commission was that Gisela, who was a Leave supporter, and I ended up agreeing entirely on the undesirability of ever holding a referendum of the same type as we'd held okay. over Brexit. Uh, because precisely, as Meg said, it was an abstract question that then handed to Parliament the task of implementation, whilst at the same time there was the implication that Parliament was merely the agent of the people in executing something which, in fact, people would have a wide variety of opinion as to exactly what it was supposed to be, and we must never do that again. Let's hope we're not having this discussion after the yes, no to net zero referendum, which Nigel Farage is pushing for. That is is an interesting case, I think, because referendums in themselves, I, I think the mischief did not begin with the holding of the referendum. If you look at why we held the referendum in the first place, it was fundamentally because politicians were not trusted to take the decisions on whether we should be in the EU or not. Because if it had been left to Parliament, Parliament would have decided that we should have remained in the EU. And that's that therefore caused all the post-referendum tension. The politicians are agreed broadly on the necessity of aiming at net zero. And you've got now a the beginnings of a populist movement against that, trying to get that overturned via a referendum. So there's this potential pattern, which could be quite toxic, of using referendums to try and circumvent the kinds of fundamentally necessary compromises of yes, politics, which happen in parliament. By the opening of the floodgates. Mm. The, and know, to put simple questions, yeah. which are nowhere near as simple as they look on paper, to the people mm. to beat but the politicians over the head with. In addition, obviously, we have the prospect of perhaps another Scottish independence referendum. I think what it's done is allowed people like Nigel Farage to have quite a prominent place in politics, even though they've never won a parliamentary election. But you also talked about this, the supremacy of parliament. But is parliament to be trusted in that the way the system works is the governing party gives so many jobs to its own MPs in government that it's it's very difficult to see how parliament as a body can be independent of government. That, I think, is an important point. And it's worth bearing in mind that for several hundreds of years, parliament operated differently from the way parliament operates today. 
the advent of the mass party system in the late 19th century led to Parliament's independence being significantly curbed. The fact that we don't control any part of our own order paper, and which led to a very interesting constitutional crisis during the course of Brexit, is in my view unnecessary. I think that if you go and look at other foreign parliaments, you can see that whilst clearly the government must have time to bring forward its own business, the ability of the parliament as a separate entity to have its own identity and put forward measures and control its own timetable is actually quite important to giving parliamentarians a sense of their own status and importance. Whereas my own experience of 22 years in the House of Commons, except in this very brief period at the end, is that ultimately MPs are largely reactive, except when there is some massive crisis where they express themselves usually to get rid of the government of the day. And I think that could be managed better. The trouble is it would need a wise government that could see the advantage to it of doing this that would be prepared of putting that balance back. After all, we've lost control of the timetable only in 1906 for the last time. And they, I think, would then reap benefits from it. It would be a, a better relationship. But I don't think it's very likely to happen because most governments through the whip system just want to maintain control and push their business through and often push it through. And this is the other big criticism in a manner where there is insufficient scrutiny, examples like the COVID regulations or alternatively, actually, the Withdrawal Agreement Act passed at the end of 2019 after the government had won the election was all done in a great hurry. And afterwards, people have noticed that there are serious flaws. Right. I completely agree with Dominic about agenda control, which is something I've written about quite a lot. And if somebody would like to read a sort of 80-page, I think, report <laughs> on that, they can find one on the Constitution Unit website with this slightly ironic title, Taking Back Control. <laughs> um, but I, I do think there's a very delicate balance between the government and its backbenchers, going back to, to your question, because obviously backbenchers are there to support the government, but also to hold it in check. And in our system where Parliament sits at the pinnacle, where there are, there are very few judicial checks, there is a huge responsibility on the shoulders of members of the governing party to actually keep the system working properly. And I think that we saw that in the, um, you referred to the, to the Owen Patterson case, where the government tried to change the rules on propriety in the House of Commons and whipped MPs to vote to change those rules. And then there was this backlash where the government had to backtrack I think that was a moment where government backbenchers were feeling the weight of their responsibility, but I think they don't feel it quite often enough. Yes, they have to choose those moments. They can't be doing that every week. And also Boris Johnson has upset that balance, yes. I would say, because going back over the last sort of 30, 40 years, dissent on the backbenchers has been quite well tolerated. And indeed, Boris Johnson was a dissenter on Brexit and Theresa May did not throw him out of the Conservative Party when he voted against her. But then he... He threw this man out. I was going to say, Dominic, you are... <laughs> Along you know, with 20 I, of his colleagues. Don't you feel that a Rubicon was crossed when and that Boris Johnson was, that said basically... that was a shifting of the goalposts. You, you can only be in this party if you agree with everything I say. Y yes, it was a vicious act uh, and a very 
contrary to accepted conservative tradition, because as Meg says, I'd, I'd put up for years with colleagues in the Conservative Party who had views who, who, which were diametrically different from my own uh, and were in a small minority historically. And they'd always been accommodated as long as philosophically they felt themselves to be conservatives. Also, but worth bearing in mind that in the 19th century, when party structures were much weaker, it was quite common for governments to be defeated because they would suddenly bring forward a piece of legislation and they would find that a significant number of their MPs just wouldn't support it. And they carried on, unless it was a confidence issue. They managed that. But we are now very intolerant of dissent. And indeed, since the 21 were expelled, it's been noteworthy that the government's behaviour towards its own backbenches uh, under Boris Johnson has been extraordinarily intolerant including micromanaging. So, for example, my successor, not just in the House, but micromanaging elsewhere. So my successor as chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, which by statute, the chair is supposed to be elected by the members. When Julian Lewis committed the less majesté of being elected with the support of opposition MPs of that committee, he had the whip withdrawn. Yeah. I, that is an astonishing way of behaving. And this is dangerous. It has a chilling effect on MPs' ability to think independently mm -hmm. and hold the government to, to standards if there is a risk of this kind of retribution. And this is really very new with Boris Johnson. Hi, Anoush here. We've got a special offer for Westminster Reimagined listeners. You can subscribe to The New Statesman for just a pound a week for 12 weeks. Just go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. And you can check out all our podcasts, including audio long reads and world review at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. But it, again, it's 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 chipping away at convention. It's chipping away at good behaviour. 
it's very difficult to roll back from that. It's, it's very difficult to reset the clock and say, let's go back to how Parliament operated 10, 15 years ago. I mean, we see it also, this idea of a party being a broad church or a coalition of, of different ideas, I think, has has gone. We see whenever even in the opposition, when the opposition has a new leader, mm. immediately there's a clear out of anyone associated with the previous leader. Yes, and that raises another issue, which is about electoral reform. Historically, the justification for our party structure was that the main political parties were broad coalitions, that they had significant internal debates on policy issues. They tended thereafter to come to compromise arrangements and to then present a united front. And I think it worked quite well for us. But if, in fact, the ideological divisions within political parties are now so marked that they can't do that, and the only way they can operate is by imposing their tyranny on minorities without accommodating them, then it does raise the question that wouldn't one be better off with a system which in fact required a form of coalition government. And I have to admit I'm slightly biased in this because having served in a coalition government between 2010 and 2014, admittedly it didn't do the poor old Liberal Democrats much good uh, electorally, but I have to say I think for the first three years of it, it delivered decision-making in government of a quality that was markedly superior to what had come before or came after. And it was reckoned, civil servants would say, we've never come across a government that makes its decisions in this fashion. And that was being forced on us by the need to have a formal structure to accommodate a minority interest, which was the Liberal Democrats. So is the issue with the constitution not not so much, it's not written, it doesn't exist on a and a document. It's not that, because as you've said, you know, some countries have written constitutions, others don't, but the same problems occur. Is is the problem in the UK that there are insufficient checks and balances within the parliamentary system? I think one problem that we have in the UK is this kind of innate sense of superiority. You know, we've we, we see ourselves as different to the rest of the world. We've never had unless you go back to the 17th century, a total crisis in our constitution that has required us to sit down and rewrite things and decide how we want the balances to work out. We sort of muddled through in this flexible way for hundreds of years. And we see ourselves as a very, very stable democracy. I don't think in this country we recognize adequately the fragility of democracy. But, you know, if you look now at Ukraine... (laughs) We can see exactly how fragile a democracy can be. And I do hope that in the West, that conflict is causing us to examine ourselves a bit more in terms of realizing quite how easy it is to slip Mm. from, you know, what seemed to be a functioning modern democracy into, you know, complete chaos and horror. Well, the signs are that we've picked up on already are, you know, dissent is frowned upon. Uh, We can nibble away at at the judiciary. There are examples of, for example, the Electoral Commission no longer being independent, but being under the supervision of a cabinet minister, changing electoral law, ID cards at elections, which was never an issue anyone really talked about prior to. Do you think that if we were to follow this clear (laughs) uh, trajectory, that it's possible in five, 10 years time, someone with a bit of charisma and a bit of um, bullishness come along and be Britain's Urban or Erdogan or Putin? Yes, it could. And it could happen in circumstances where there was serious economic problems and somebody put themselves forward. And the issue could arise 
partly, as Meg says, because of this sense of exceptionalism. So people drift into it because they think we've got this exceptional system of government and they can't see that, in fact, there are other models and indeed shortcomings to it, which need to be accommodated if you're to make that system work. We are a rather proud bunch of people. And I think at times it can be quite arrogant. So yes, it can happen. But that said, we are a deep-rooted democracy and we're also a rather bloody-minded people. And I think the idea that people are going to allow themselves to be lulled into a tyrannical form of government without extensive protest of a kind that would be likely to cause major political disruption is rather unlikely. I think you've got to be aware, though, there's lots of worries about the state of democracy in many countries around the world. And there's this concept frequently used now of democratic backsliding, which is the idea that democracy doesn't end with a bang through a coup or something in the sort of traditional way, Mm. perhaps. It is, as you said, nibbled away at gradually. You know, you see restrictions on the right to protest, restrictions on the the ability of opposition parties to get their voices heard, control of the media, restrictions on the courts. And we we had some political scientists writing on the Constitution blog a few months ago who drew the analogy of the frog in the pan, Mm. that, you know, gradually things are getting warmer and warmer and you don't really you don't really see the threat that's coming and eventually it's too late late. to do anything about it. The reason I wanted to have this discussion was I I became obsessed during the last election with an obscure paragraph in the Conservative Manifesto. It was on page 42. It was just this, (laughs) just said, after Brexit, we also need to look at the broader aspects of our constitution, the relationship between the government, parliament and the courts, the functioning of the royal prerogative, the role of the House of Lords and access to justice. And the government's everything. <laughs> uh, it is, and the government is doing some of that. It's likely to bring in a bill to replace the Human Rights Act with the British Bill of Rights, which is incoherent nonsense. Where they actually think they're going, I don't know. But so the intention British from humans. Is, is well, there? there may be a bit of that, but what's undoubtedly clear is that they want to clip the ECHR to try to moderate its impact, and I think they're going to find that very difficult. They've had this project, which they have now pursuing on judicial review, albeit that too has had the wind taken out of its sails by the Folks report. So I'm not too worried about that. Uh, But there is lurking around this resentment that there are constitutional structures which are there to check the executive when the executive thinks it's acting in the name of the people. So you're absolutely right to identify this as a subtext of what I will call Johnsonian politics. And I think it is going to continue and it is going to give rise to a lot of democratic debate. My hope is that Johnson will be long out of government before any of those things are fully carried out. And actually, I also happen to think that many Conservative MPs are not really very supportive of it. I think you'll find that on a page previous to that in the Conservative Manifesto, there's an allegation made at Parliament that it thwarted the will of the British people on Brexit. But if you look at who it was who voted down Theresa May's deal... Uh, Boris Johnson and Kev. <laughs> Boris Johnson, Priti Patel, Jacob Rees-Mogg and many other members of this cabinet. There's a kind of deliberate attempt there to castigate our institutions, our traditional institutions, which are there to constrain but the executive being, and to represent the people. It's also been quite relaxed about the use of logic in that, you know, if they can have a go at themselves for thwarting the will of, of the electorate, 
then negotiate a treaty that they then want to break. You yeah. know, they, it's an inbuilt and um, stand on a and stand to, on a slogan of getting Brexit done when arguably they were the ones who stopped Brexit getting done a lot earlier. And I don't think we can ignore propriety issues as well. Jacob Rees-Mogg described Partygate as fluff, uh, and I don't think Partygate is fluff. If you have enact laws which potentially criminalise and fine people. Uh, for breaking the law, and you yourself are doing it with impunity because you happen to be in the government building in in number 10 Downing Street. I don't think that's fluff. I found that particularly coming actually from Jacob Rees-Mogg, quite curious and rather worrying because here's a man who constantly markets himself as being a patrician suffused with the propriety of parliamentary ethics. But let me get let me get a point in here that I, I'm probably breaking my contract to UCL not to have got in earlier, actually, which is that I think on that, Partygate is a really interesting case because generally, you know, rules are quite boring. People are not very kind of tuned in to the minutiae of what's going on in government. Partygate, as they say, cut through because up and down the country, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who were prevented from seeing their loved ones when they were unwell, their loved ones were unwell or dying, etc., etc. Et and, and who understood why, you know, were, were doing their best to follow the rules. Yes, they were being bound by rules that they didn't like, but they followed them anyway for the good of the general community. And when they understand that people in government were not doing that, it's really upsetting to them and rules they realise do matter. And we did some polling. Actually, it was before Partygate, it's important to say. We did some polling last summer, which was just published in January, asking people what are some of the characteristics that they most value in politicians. You know, they want politicians who are clever, who are charismatic, who get things done, et cetera, et cetera. A long list of things. The thing that came top was honesty and owning up when you make mistakes. And one of the most striking questions that we asked on that poll, which followed up a poll that was done by the Hansard Society during the height of the Brexit nastiness, which had found that majority of people supported having a strong man leader who was prepared to break the rules, which was quite chilling at the time. We kind of replayed that question by asking people, if forced to choose, do you want someone who follows the rules or who is prepared to break the rules in order to get things done? 75% wanted somebody who followed the rules against 6% who were prepared to have someone who broke the rules to get things done. And that is before Partygate. Mm -hmm. So some of these things will cut through. I don't think the British public like dishonesty or rule breaking in their politicians. And, you know, you have to hope that that somehow gets us out of this because some of this culture is contrary to what the British public want. Well, Meg, Dominic, thank you so much for joining us. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a really interesting, slightly terrifying discussion. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up terrifying because initially I thought that I was being, not admonished, but being advised that my fears weren't as founded as I thought they were, that actually, you know, we have a thriving, healthy democracy and it's immaterials whether the constitution is written down or not. But, you know, as the discussion went on, words like tyranny, dangerous, elimination of dissent. Boiling frogs. Boiling frogs all came up, which does show me that I think we were onto something in that there is this sense, I think, that something has happened in a big way of the last three or four years, that conventions, the idea that government and uh, governing can only really 
work healthily in the UK if there's principles and convention and um, decency. If if suddenly those are chipped away at, then we do end up in a situation where potentially, you know, things can go badly awry. Yeah, I can imagine that because I think Dominic mentioned public trust. And it's interesting to see what happened, for example, with Boris Johnson making that slur about Jimmy Savile to Keir Starmer in Parliament. Yes. You can imagine how that could potentially snowball into a storming of the capital situation. Well, exactly. And it felt very un-British that not only did that happen, but two or three days later, he was surrounded by a mob shouting at him. That feels like the sort of footage you get probably, you know, in, in Washington when Trump is at his worst. And I think that was just a little sort of curtain raiser <laughs> to what might be lurking, you know, behind the scenes if we're not careful. Yeah. And I also found it interesting to think whether or not this can be part of a pattern and that future governments, whatever their party, can take on some of these mm. breaking of convention. You know, could it be the case that we'd have Keir Starmer as a Labour prime minister who then ousts all of the sort of Corbynites in his party who are anti-NATO, for example? There were some whispers that he might do that to his own his own party and opposition. Is it that parties might pick up these kind of habits in future? Well, if currently these habits succeed, you know, there's nothing to stop someone coming along in three or four years going, well, that worked. Mm. I'll do a bit more of that. But from my point of view, and I think that's a concern that we don't have in place. Okay, it doesn't necessarily have to be written down. It doesn't have to be carved on stone. But we don't have, a, I think, a healthy system of checks and balances that, that can prevent something like that happening. That's all for now. Next week, I'll be handing over to my colleague, Alva Ray. That's right. Join me and Alba for the next episode where we'll be discussing how voters' habits and loyalties have changed and whether we're now witnessing playlist politics with special guests Professor of Politics John Curtis and former Labour MP Sean Woodward. Until then, bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.